so I turned to the things that I knew the best, which in that case was was heroin and other substances. So that led to me, unfortunately, losing my job, um, having to move home back to the state of Indiana, um, and just a cascade of other consequences. WVIA's Mind Over Matter, a mental health initiative, is underwritten by Geisinger. When you hear Geisinger, what comes to mind? A hospital, doctors, health insurance? We're all those things. But here's something you might not think of. We're also your local pharmacy. Geisinger Pharmacy isn't just for people in the hospital, it's for you. Want to fill a prescription? We've got you covered. Just need over-the-counter stuff? We've got that too. And Geisinger Pharmacy is run by your friends and neighbors. We're your local healthcare system and your local pharmacy. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mind Over Matter podcast. I'm Tracy Matisak, and today we're talking about substance use disorders. What often begins as a coping mechanism can lead to a dependency on alcohol, nicotine, legal or illegal drugs, and the like. And that, of course, can lead to negative outcomes in every area of life, from our mental and physical health to our relationships to our performance at work or school. With an estimated one in 10 Americans experiencing a substance use disorder at some point in their lives, it's a significant problem, but there is hope and there is help. Our guest today knows about substance use disorders from both his personal and professional experience. Benjamin Gonzalez is the operations manager for virtual care at Geisinger's Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health. He leads Geisinger's virtual care efforts to address the behavioral needs of people in central and northeastern Pennsylvania. Ben Gonzalez, welcome to the Mind Over Matter podcast. Hey, Tracy. It's great to be with you guys this afternoon. Well, I want to begin, Ben, with your personal story, and then we'll widen the lens a bit to talk about substance use disorders more broadly. But as a young person, you had a pretty significant struggle with substance use. Can you share a little bit of your story? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. You know, I, I think, um, you know, my, my story is like many other young men that have been impacted by the opioid epidemic. Uh, I grew up in the Midwest. I come from a family of pharmaceutical researchers. Uh, who also uh, ha- have a lot of family uh, family members and loved ones that have also been affected by this disease. Um, you know, oddly enough, I was actually the kid in high school that um, largely stayed away from substances of abuse. Um, I was a pretty um, athletic and academic kid, um, but ultimately, I think genetic predisposition is is what ultimately did me in, and not to mention just the desire to fit in with my peers and felt socially accepted. So, you know, that I first started, started seeing that that play out actually in, uh, in non-social settings, uh, specifically when I got my wisdom teeth extracted. Um, I, like many others, was given uh, an opioid painkiller um, after the wisdom tooth extraction. And let's just say that I, I took the prescription much faster than my dentist would have liked me to. Um, and from there, I think that kind of opened up my eyes to the fact that maybe this isn't as dangerous as my extended family may have made it made it appear. Now, I ultimately went to Purdue University for my undergrad. Um, I majored in two things. Uh, the first was uh, was agricultural economics, and the other was partying on the weekends. And so, um, you know, a lot of my experience started around just socializing with my peers. But you know, like many young twenty somethings, I really didn't have the emotional intelligence to handle 
a lot of the stress of everyday life. Um, and I ultimately, you know, ultimately, like uh, like most folks that go to college, I graduated, got a great job, um, had a great relationship, um, started adulting, as they say. And I think that that's really where that lack of, mo- of emotional intelligence and healthy coping skills really just caught up with me, you know. Um, so, you know, I, I was mostly drinking on the weekends. I was in, a, in my opinion, not a very healthy relationship uh, that unfortunately came to an end. Um, my ability to cope with that was not the healthiest. Um, so I turned to the things that I knew the best, which in that case was was heroin and other substances. So that led to me, unfortunately, losing my job, um, having to move home back to the state of Indiana, um, and just a cascade of other consequences. Um, and, you know, that's really where things fell apart for me. Once that sense of meaning and things that I value went away, um, the... The, the the overlap of my values and my behaviors was just just totally gone. The cognitive dissonance just can't be, you know, uh, overstated. And so, you know, I wasn't able to hold a job. I pretty much spent all of my savings, um, and ultimately that led to some consequences, including a number of overdose, a couple of arrests, having to drop out of graduate school, and of course some really damaged relationships. Um, yeah, you, know, you paid a really heavy price. Yeah, there's there's no question, you know, and there's there's countless other folks like me that, uh, you know, have been just as impacted. But, you know, for me, when I first really started getting heavy into heroin was when um, it was, uh, I guess, mid 2014 um, in, in Indianapolis. That's really when we started seeing um, fentanyl start to hit the street. And so um, it was often it was common for us to get you know, uh, a gram or so of heroin that was certainly a lot more potent than what we'd usually be accustomed to. So I ended up um, having about six accidental overdoses, um, many of which um, resulted in hospitalization. Um, and, you know, the, the craziest thing about this disorder is that um, despite our consequences, despite our life falling apart, despite the fact that our behaviors are in total opposition with our values, um, you know, it really becomes a survival instinct. And so Instead of the first thing, uh, you know, you know, normally when I wake up today, the first thing I think of is, well, you know, what do I have on my on my list that I have to do today? I have to go to work, I have to walk the dog, prepare a meal for myself, you know, all those things that a regular adult would. But you know, the the my substance use disorder, and for so many other with my diagnosis, it really becomes a survival instinct. Your brain mm-hmm. literally gets rewired. And begins to interpret that substance that you are dependent upon, just like a survival instinct. So um, my body interprets heroin, cocaine, all the other things that I abused, the same way that it interpreted the need for food, water, and shelter, and all those things that keep me alive. You said earlier that there is um, often a very short window of time for someone who is struggling with substance use to have a willingness to get treatment. And I wonder, um, when did that happen for you? Or what brought you to that, that point? And, and how big a window was there for you to get treatment? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Um, you know, like I said, the, the, the consequences were really starting to stack high. And so you know, there were several occasions where um, you know, I'd either been hospitalized or landed myself in the Marion County Jail in Indianapolis. And after a few of those times, um, my family, loved ones, whoever it might be, attempted to take me to treatment. Um, and even in that moment, you know, 
a couple days after getting out of the hospital, um, the willingness to seek care was pretty much gone at that point. Um, there's a term that we use for that. It's called pre-contemplation. It's basically where we completely negate um, the consequences and the chaos that our disorder is creating in our life. And despite that, um, we really just forgo the things that we know are going to help and save us. Now, ultimately, mm-hmm. me landing in treatment um, was a result of my sixth overdose. In that case, my family actually found, actually found me in our family bathroom, um, unconscious after a heroin overdose, um, found myself in a progressive care unit with aspirational pneumonia. Um, again, five overdoses before that, three failed treatment attempts. Um, and, you know, the thing that I'll never forget is the attending who happened to be my addiction medicine specialist essentially came in and said, you know, Ben, what are you going to change? And if there's one thing you should know about me, it's that I can often be pretty arrogant. I think the same can be said with a lot of people with substance use disorders, pre-contemplative, like I said. But in that moment, I think because of the consequences and because I'd finally come to terms with the fact that my way was never going to work, I couldn't think myself out of a thinking problem. I finally came into this palms up posture where I was willing to say, you know, Dr. Kelly, you're right. My way is never going to work. Please take the reins and show me how to do this. So I think it comes down to a confluence of, um, you know, a, a person like me having the humility to say, I can't do this by myself, but also having the access so that when I'm finally in that posture, that, that, that access is there for me so that my family, myself, my other loved ones can get the support that we need in, you know, some of the, the hardest times in our lives. And I want to yeah. talk about access a little bit later in our conversation, because that's what your job at Geisinger is all about. But I'm wondering, Ben, knowing what you know now, how might you have helped your 22-year-old self identify healthier coping strategies when you found yourself just sort of overwhelmed by life, by adulting, by just trying to figure out your path? How would you advise your 22-year-old self now? You know, I, I think the most, the most uh, salient thing that comes to mind is the value of humility. Um, you know, I'm a firm believer that the smartest person in the room isn't the person that's constantly saying, I know. The person to me that is the wisest and brings the most value is the person that's willing to say, I don't know when that's actually the case. And, you know, I think there's so much pressure on young people and and probably all of us in general, regardless of your generation, to, you know, have everything together and buttoned up and feel like we have the answers. And I'd say if I had to put it into a sentence, uh, it's, I'd say to myself, Ben, it's okay to not have all the answers. There's a lot of value in not knowing and having a humble posture and willingness to, to learn from others instead of trying to figure it out yourself. And, you know, even eight years into my recovery, that's what it's all about today. It's willingness to say, I don't know. Um, and, and that humility allows me to accept help from others. Yeah. Well, we have much more to talk about. We certainly want to talk about access to care, and we want to get your thoughts, Ben, about what people and loved ones who are dealing with substance use disorders need to do to get started on the road to recovery. But we are going to take a quick break. More of the Mind Over Matter podcast right after this. WVIA presents a Mind Over Matter Minute. Hi, I'm Dr. Kylie Oleski from Geisinger. 
Sleep is essential to our health and well-being. The National Institutes of Health estimates about one-third of people have trouble sleeping, with 5 to 10% of people being diagnosed with a sleep disorder. The most common sleep disorder is insomnia, where a person has difficulty either falling or staying asleep, which interferes with daytime activities. Cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is a first-line treatment performed by a clinical psychologist. Most people can experience positive outcomes within several sessions. We all have trouble sleeping sometimes, but if it is persistent, you should talk to your doctor. The good news is that insomnia is treatable. Remember, you are not alone. For more, visit wvia.org forward slash mindovermatter or dial 211 to speak with someone who can help. Mind Over Matter is presented by WVIA in partnership with Geisinger. You are listening to the Mind Over Matter podcast. I'm Tracy Matisak, and in this episode, we are talking about substance use disorders. Our guest is Benjamin Gonzalez. Ben is in charge of Geisinger's virtual care efforts to address the behavioral needs of people in central and northeastern Pennsylvania. Um, Ben, what substance or substances tend to be the most problematic when it comes to people developing dependencies? You know, I've always said that... uh... Uh, addiction is an equal opportunity offender. So at the end of the day, um, I think we give a lot of stock to things like heroin and meth in our communities. And, you know, I certainly won't downplay the the havoc they wreak on the communities that we serve. But, you know, at the end of the day, really the most prevalent is actually alcohol use disorder, you know, unsurprising uh, because of the access in our community. But really at the end of the day, that's really what's um, really impacting our communities the most. Um, but I think it's these illicit substances that we hear about the most, and not to mention the impact that it plays on our younger generation. Where of course, we're losing productivity and you know, long, potentially healthy lives at the end of the day. Yeah. In one of our TV episodes of Mind Over Matter, we talked about the huge spike in substance use disorders uh, among young people um, and all kinds of other mental health issues primarily because of the pandemic. Um, And there is still, as you well know, an enormous need for these kinds of services. And a lot of your job at Geisinger is figuring out how to meet that need, particularly on the digital side. How is Geisinger addressing the issue of access to quality care? Yeah, so it's a great question. You know, I think, um, you know, you, you, you mentioned the word quality. And I think we, like our other peers in this space, firmly believe that you can't have quality care without access to care. Um, You can have the most qualified clinical team um, with some of the best resources and best minds in this space. But at the end of the day, if that access isn't readily available, both for a new evaluation and for ongoing care, since these are chronic illnesses, you know, you're you're really kind of sunk. Um, And so, you know, for us, I think it was really a matter of creating surge access first and foremost. Um, you know, we um, are, are, of course, a, a large health system. Um, but at the end of the day, like many of our peers, we were unprepared for what we've all experienced the last several years or so, the uncertainty um, and just the fear that comes with living through a pandemic. And so for us, we saw um, our increases spike dramatically. Um, we're talking in some days, you know, several hundred referrals to behavioral health mm-hmm. services. And so being a primarily rural um, geography, um, we recognize the value that a virtual care could offer our community in a very quick way. 
Um, and so for us, um, we've recruited several dozen providers um, in every single one of our divisions from adult and pediatric psychiatry, adult and pediatric um, therapy, as, as well as um, you know, across some of our other divisions, um, bringing expertise to central and northeast Pennsylvania that we may not be able to if we were only offering our care in a brick and mortar type of setting. So, you know, that was the first and foremost is recognizing that digital can be our friend. Um, but, you know, the other is, is how do we make the most of our access, right? So just adding providers is one piece of this. So a lot of our work now is um, doing things like overhauling our referral pathways, creating care pathways to get patients with specific conditions to the right providers at the right time, as opposed to being directed to an inappropriate resource, being rescheduled for something else, and just being run through the gauntlet that often becomes our behavioral health system of care. Um, you know, one other piece that, you know, is worth mentioning, so we also stood up an intake service. And basically, the intake service um, fundamentally served as our front door. It was very common for our referrals to be redundant, um, unclear, or for um, us to have multiple referrals mainly because we felt that the referring provider was just looking for something to stick, right? I think that's what we do when we have patients that are in, in, in crisis and, and need help. Um, and so we created a service that essentially served as the front door to have a brief 45-minute conversation so we can really get to the bottom of what a patient needs um, so that we can get them to the right resource the first time and so we can also address social needs that, of course, coexist with mental health and substance use disorders. Yeah, and that is the challenge for healthcare providers everywhere is getting people to the right kind of care at the right time. Um, ben, what, can you address cost too for a moment? Because recovery is not inexpensive. Not everyone can afford it. Um, you know, how do we work around that and, and what kinds of options do people have if they're not able to do, let's say, you know, a 90-day uh, recovery? Yeah. So, you know, I think um, whether you talk about substance use disorders or mental health disorders, of course, they're all kind of, they're all kind of uh, intermingled, to say the least. Now, um, we, we still have a lot of work to do to achieve parity um, in behavioral health and substance use disorder space. We are um, you know, typically one of the lower reimbursed services. And so as a result, um, it is very hard to get access. And as a result, there's a lot of providers that opt to go in the direction of either self-pay or only taking commercial payers. And so often a lot of the resources that folks are looking for um, are a heavy out-of-pocket uh, sum, unfortunately. Um, you know, I, I think one of the best things that's happened uh, in the last, you know, especially like decade or so in the substance use disorder space is the rise of evidence-based practices like medication-assisted treatment. Um, it's really the gold standard of um, SUD care. Um, I think any professional in this space would, would agree with that. And the great thing about it is that in almost every scenario, um, uh, insurance companies will pay for it. And so we are seeing that um, there are emerging evidence-based practices um, that we feel uh, can you know, certainly not only lower the cost of care, but improve the efficacy and outcomes of those folks. Yeah, and, and I just wanted to clarify, Ben, when you said medication-assisted treatment. Yeah, so medication-assisted treatment are medications 
that are used to treat substance use disorders. Some great examples are medications like um, naltrexone, which can be used for opioid use disorders um, and alcohol use disorders alike. Um, many folks have also heard of Suboxone, which is uh, a partial agonist that uh, treats uh, opioid use disorder. So there are medications that can be used um, in tandem with things like therapy, recovery support services, um, that, that all kind of come together to create um, know, a better outcome for patients with substance use disorders. Yeah. A few more minutes to go here, Ben. I want to squeeze in a couple more questions for you. And one is, can a person be cured of a substance use disorder, or is it more a matter of learning to kind of manage it over a lifetime? Yeah. So substance use disorders, like many behavioral health disorders, are are chronic illnesses. And um, and in the context of a substance use disorder, it, it is a lifelong disorder. Um, there isn't a magical switch uh, that you know you you switch at some point in your in your journey where you say uh, you're cured you're cured. And so you know I think at the end of the day um, I, I think the best metaphor that I've heard for this is um, is is breathing underwater. Um, there's a author and uh, I believe a priest by the name of Richard Roy that coined that, and he basically compared living in recovery to um, to breathing underwater, which of course human beings cannot do. Well, I, as a person with opioid use disorder, should not be able to do things like hold down a nine to five, get two master's degrees simultaneously, own a home, um, maintain healthy relationships. But through the process of recovery and developing those healthy coping skills and ways of, of, of interacting with the world around us, um, we learn how to do things that were previously seen as impossible for people like us. So, you know, that's really what it's all about. It's, it's about learning a new way of living that doesn't require me um, to lean on the old behaviors and coping mechanisms that in the past got me nowhere. Um, and the things that I do today really are what's largely responsible for my success personally and professionally. I'd like you to talk a little bit more about that, Ben, about what it is that keeps you moving forward all these years later. I mean, as you said, you've gotten two master's degrees in healthcare. You've devoted yourself to helping people with similar struggles. Um, no doubt there can be a temptation to go back to old habits. What are you doing that's keeping you moving forward in such a positive way? You know, it, it's funny you bring that up because I think what we're doing today is a great example of that. Um, I, I think for me, service and giving back have been among um, you know, the most important things uh, for my recovery. Um, you know, I, I often tell my colleagues in the Department of Psychiatry that um, doing work that's fulfilling to me and helping other people with my diagnosis is among some of the most uh, healthy things that I can do. Um, but, you know, I think the other piece goes back to what I mentioned before. I think, yeah, I'm, I'm eight years into this. Um, I'm, I guess I'm considered an expert, which is, is still uh, unbelievable for me to think. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that I'm not the expert when it comes to my own recovery. And I, as long as I keep that humble palms up posture, that willingness to learn from others and recognize that I don't have all the answers, um, I believe, I firmly believe that things will continue to progress uh, in the way they're going. And this beautiful odyssey that I'm on will just continue to uh, to. To, to unfurl before my eyes. You know, Ben, 
I don't have to tell you that there's always been a stigma attached to substance use disorders, as there is with many mental health conditions. How do you think we're doing as a society as it relates to destigmatizing these kinds of disorders, and particularly substance use? Oh, you know, I, I really feel like it's funny you bring that up because I feel like a lot of our surge in demand in, in that we're seeing in the community, of course, a big part of it was COVID-19. But I also think a big part of why we've seen that sustained is because of lowering stigma in our community. Uh, I certainly won't say that we're done with that crusade, um, but you know, you don't have to go too far on any social media site to see um, lay people really taking up the charge, um, and even people that aren't affected by this, uh, taking up the charge and, and recognizing that removing stigma is among some of the most important things that we can do. Now, I think for me, one of the most important things that, that I think any lay person can do to remove stigma is using the appropriate language um, and recognizing the value of recovery. Um, you know, remove words like addict and junkie from your vocabulary mm. and start focusing on people in recovery. Another great thing to say is I think our community is inundated with examples of what a person with an addiction looks like, but how many people have a picture of what a person in recovery looks like? Those are the things that we need to continue to promote, being recovery-centered as opposed to use disorder-centered. And for people who are struggling with a substance use disorder or they've got a loved one who's in that struggle now, what would you say to encourage that person to get help or for the family member? Where do they start? Yeah. So I, I think the first thing, again, it goes back to that humble posture. Um, I think it's important for us to recognize that it's okay for us to not have straight A's in this area of our life and to not have all the answers. I think that's first and foremost is to get into that posture. Um, but then I think beyond that, and I think this goes for both the people that are living with the substance use disorder and their loved ones, I think it's very important to remember what our values are. Um, I think the power that loved ones have in this equation is that they know their loved one better than anybody. And of course, then they can reflect back to them. Here's who you really are. Here are the things that you value. And here's how your behavior is in complete opposition to that. I think there's so much power in those relationships and how well they know uh, their loved one that's affected by this. Um, that brings a lot of power in helping a loved one come to terms with the fact that perhaps they need to do something about uh, the way that they're living their life. And what might you say, Ben, to that family member who's engaged in that struggle right now, just by way of encouragement? Because as you know, it can be a long road. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd say the first is, is take care of yourself. Um, I, I really, and I think the same can be said for caregivers. Um, you can only pour into somebody so much if you're not pouring into yourself. So the first is you got to have great boundaries. And I know that's one of the hardest things. Um, but that is what enables you to be there for your loved one when they are actually ready to go and do the work and, 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 and seek recovery themselves. The other is, again, like I said, remind them of who they really are. What are their actual values? And, and show them the opposite. Show them that cognitive dissonance. Um, I, I can't tell you how powerful that is and how much um, that really helped me and my family you know, uh, get to the point where we are today. Final question, Ben, in our last 30 seconds or less, if our listeners could take away one thing from this conversation above all else, what would you want that to be? Yeah, you know, it's, I, I'd say first and foremost is that these disorders that we treat in our department 
are just as important and debilitating as things like a broken arm or a broken funny bone, as we like to say. Um, and, but the other important thing is that we are hard at work. Uh, we are your servants and doing what we can to create timely access for those of you. Um, so, you know, we're hard at work and, um, we're, we're so looking forward to helping those of you that are seeking care. Ben Gonzalez is the Operations Manager for Virtual Care at Geisinger's Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health. Ben, thank you so much for sharing your story with us and for this great conversation on substance use disorders and the help and hope that is out there. It's my pleasure. Thank you. I'm Tracy Matisak. You're listening to the Mind Over Matter podcast. For more information, check out our website at wvia.org slash mindovermatter. WVIA's Mind Over Matter, a mental health initiative, is underwritten by Geisinger. When you hear Geisinger, what comes to mind? A hospital? Doctors? Health insurance? We're all those things. But here's something you might not think of. We're also your local pharmacy. Geisinger Pharmacy isn't just for people in the hospital, it's for you. Want to fill a prescription? We've got you covered. Just need over-the-counter stuff? We've got that too. And Geisinger Pharmacy is run by your friends and neighbors. We're your local healthcare system and your local pharmacy. 